With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 224. It's titled, Mastering the Market Cycle. And that title is the title of a brand new book by Howard Marks, the investor. He's the co-founder of Oak Tree Capital. The book came out today, October 2nd, 2018. I downloaded it on my Kindle, read it in one setting, and I want to share some of the principles that I learned from the book. Howard Marks is one of my virtual investment mentors. I have followed his work for years at my former investment advisory firm. I invested a number of my clients, my college endowment clients, in Oak Tree's distressed debt funds. I have visited their shop on site in Southern California. Howard Marks has spoken at my firm's client conference in the past. I've met him once, but He doesn't know who I am, but we can still learn from investors like them. And I want to share some of the important insights that I garnered from the book because it very much is in line with how I invest and how I have invested for several decades now. To kick it off, there was an article last week by Jason Zweig in the Wall Street Journal, and it talked about how the dumb money... The dumb money is is us, individual retail investors, as opposed to that, that's that's the term, the smart money, hedge funds, supposedly institutional investors. That, that's the term they apply to us, the individual investors. I don't think sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not. In this particular article, Jason Zweig is pointing out that the retail money has been moving from U.S. stocks to non-U.S. stocks for a number of years now. He points out that over the past 10 years, as U.S. stocks hugely outperformed, that investors took $34 billion out of U.S. funds and added a trillion dollars to international. Now, I'm sure there's some institutional funds or investors in that. But it has not been a winning move. In the article, they point out some data compiled or shared by an institutional investment firm named AJO. And I'll link to this really cool document. They must do it monthly, but they show the returns of a number of investment indices over very, very long time periods. And the data shows through October 31st, the S&P 500 a measure of U.S. large company stocks, outperformed international stocks as measured by the MSCI World XUS Index over the one, three, 
5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, and 45 year period. Can you imagine that? Over all those periods. Now, if you've listened to the show, you know that performance is very end period sensitive. There have been lengthy times where international stocks have outperformed U.S. stocks. They did so for the 10 years ending December 1986. International stocks outperformed the U.S. by 6.2 percentage points. And they did so for the 10 years ending December 2007. They outperformed by an annualized average of 3.1 percentage points. But they haven't recently. And it's hard to say when that trend will reverse. But after I shared, I shared the article on Twitter. I sometimes get on Twitter, at J.D. Stein. And Matthew tweeted back to me, replied, and said, but the fundamentals are strong. Why do you think demand will fall or there will be a sudden credit squeeze? I actually don't. I don't. I don't think there'll be a sudden shift. I don't know. And that gets to the point of investing in market cycles and being aware, as Mark says, of the market's temperature. Where are we in the cycle? I agree fundamentals are strong. U.S. corporate earnings growth is up 19% over the past 12 months. Analysts expect it to increase corporate earnings to increase 13%. The October ISM Manufacturing PMI index came in at 59.8, just down slightly from its 14-month high. U.S. GDP has grown 14.2, I'm sorry, U.S. GDP, gross domestic product, the measure of economic output, grew at a 4.2% annual rate in the second quarter. Can you imagine if I imagine it was 14%? No, 4.2%. Major economic firms like Capital Economics expect third quarter GDP to come in at 3%. Why shouldn't we be overweight U.S. stocks based on that data? Before we answer whether we should or should not be significantly overweight U.S. stocks, we need to look at investing in cycles. And we I last covered this topic in episode 173. It was titled, Should You Invest Based on Cycles? And in that episode, I quoted extensively from Howard Marks. In his latest book, Mastering the Market Cycle, he writes, there are three ingredients for success, investing success. Aggressiveness, timing, and skill. And if you have enough aggressiveness at the right time, you don't need much skill. And then he digs deeper into those ingredients. He really goes through how to invest. And he points out that positioning and selection are the two main tools in portfolio management. And by positioning, he's talking about cycle Positioning. He describes that as the process of deciding on the risk posture of your portfolio in response to your judgments regarding 
the principle cycles. And cycles are patterns. He has a chapter where he talks about the economic cycle, the profit cycle in terms of corporate profits, which right now we're in the upside of a very strong corporate profit growth. The credit cycle, how willing are banks to lend and, and just the ability of companies to issue bonds in the bond market. You can often judge where we are in the credit cycle by the incremental yield that you get for investing in bonds above risk-free U.S. treasuries. In fact, half dozen episodes ago, we talked about bank loans, the ability of companies to issue loans that are then syndicated into the marketplace. The very strong appetite for credit risk right now. Other cycles are the real estate cycle. And one of the most important cycles when it comes to cycle positioning is investor psychology, their attitudes, their level of fear and greed. And where we are in the cycle, all these cycles, the economic cycle, the corporate profit cycle, it arises from human psychology and behaviors. Decisions that we make as individuals, whether we're going to buy more, we're going to borrow more, those influence the cycles. If if we were automatons, completely rational, and markets were extremely efficient, we wouldn't have cycles because everything would just move like clockwork. But because households and businesses overreact, they get overly fearful, they get overly zealous, that leads to cycles. And so we have cycle positioning and, and we have to decide how aggressive or defensive we want to be. And he describes that's the, that's the main positioning when it comes to cycles. He writes, the choice between aggressiveness and defensiveness is the principal dimension in which investors position portfolios in response to where they think they stand in the cycles and what that implies for future market developments. In other words, increasing and decreasing, increasing and decreasing exposure to market. So by aggressiveness, he, des- he defines that as you increase risk, you risk more of your capital, you hold lower quality assets, you make investments that are more reliant on favorable macro outcomes. Perhaps you employ financial leverage. Defensiveness, you would reduce risk, you would invest less capital, hold more cash, emphasize safer assets, buy things that can be that can do relatively well even in the absence of prosperity. And you shun leverage. So that's the first step, the first tool, the positioning, and whether to be aggressive or defensive. The second tool then is asset selection. He describes that as the process of deciding which markets, market niches or niches, and specific securities or assets to overweight and underweight. How do you implement your views based on where we are in the cycle? Particularly, now we we can implement our positioning on the cycle. We can do it passively through index funds and ETFs. And that's primarily how I implement 
my investment decisions. And it's what I share on Money for the Rest of Us Plus. We look at where we are in the cycle and in the model portfolios and my, my particular, my personal portfolio. We take a positioning and we implement it primarily through passive investing. But that isn't the only way to do it. You can have a view on an asset's intrinsic value. What is it worth? What is the present value of that future dividend stream or cash flow from that asset? You calculate that and you compare that intrinsic value to the price. And if the particular asset is priced less than the intrinsic value, then you potentially buy it. He writes, Marks, the key prerequisite for superior performance in this regard is above average insight into the asset's intrinsic value, the likely future changes in that value and the relationship between its intrinsic value and its current market price. All investors who follow a given asset or should have opinions regarding should or should all investors who follow a given asset have or should have opinions regarding its intrinsic value. The market price of the asset reflects the consensus of those opinions, meaning investors collectively have set the price. That's where buyers and sellers agree to transact. The buyers buy because they think it's a smart investment at the current price, and the sellers sell because they think it's fully priced or overpriced there. And he goes on and asks, what about the accuracy of those views? And he talks about the theoretical side of it. The efficient market hypothesis, he writes, states that all available information is incorporated into those prices efficiently. That the prices equal the intrinsic value all the time. If you're an active investor actively selecting specific securities, that cannot be your view. Now, when we look at it from a logical standpoint, what we're saying is if the price is set by all investors, then we have to assume that those investors are wrong if we're going to buy that specific asset. The average is the average, he points out. And so we have to be above average by thinking everybody else is wrong. What's our informational edge? And then he points out the empirical side of it. Performance shows Studies, few, very few investors consistently outperform the market. But that's kind of where we are when it comes to making how to invest. You position it based on cycles. You decide where we are and then decide how aggressive or defensive we want to be. And once we make that decision, then we have to decide how to implement that. Implement it passively or implement it actively using the skill to figure out which assets are mispriced and implement it that way. Before we continue, let me pause here and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. 
LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com David. That's linkedin.com David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Marx points out that with investing, there's an element of skill and luck. Skill, he describes, is the ability to make these decisions, these positioning decisions regarding cycles, the asset selection decisions, to do so that it, you know, generally are on balance correct, although not in every case, and to do so with a repeatable intellectual process and on the basis of reasonable assumptions regarding the future. That's, I believe I, I have investment skill. I do not have the skill to identify securities that are mispriced in terms of the market price relative to the intrinsic value. The exception would be closed-end funds. Closed-end funds are like mutual funds. They trade on an exchange. They're primarily owned by individual investors. These, these individuals panic, particularly during times of fear, and the net asset value, the intrinsic value, you can see as plan a day. It differs from the market price. That I can do. But to purchase an individual stock, and I believe that Amazon or some other com company is mispriced. I, I can't do that. But I have invested professionally in a way where I've identified market cycles and positioned accordingly, been willing to be more aggressive during times when other investors were fearful or where there were, I felt like an asset class was too cheap, that investors had, had overreacted. And I've been able to pull back risk when investors are 
overly zealous. But still, there's an element of luck. That's what happens when, even though you have reasonable assumptions, that things just don't go your way, that things don't happen as they're expected to happen, particularly in the timing. Over the long term, he says, and luck is the wild card. It can make good decisions fail and bad ones succeed, but mostly in the short run. In the long run, it's reasonable to expect skill to win out. But he admits it's hard. It's hard to be an investor. It takes practice. It takes decades of practice. That's why we start small. And you kind of have to pick your spots. I'd rather spend my time researching cycles. Where are we? What are market conditions today? And that's what we do on Money for the Rest of Us Plus, which, by the way, is now open for, for new members. So you can go to moneyfortherestofus.com and learn more about that. The other thing he points out in his examples that he gives in his book, they're all extreme environments. Talks about the nifty 50 in the early 70s and late 60s. The internet bubble where, where I was investing during that time. The, the financial crisis or after the internet bubble, the opportunities that were there in 2002 and 2003 the high risk going into the financial crisis and the opportunity afterwards. He says, we want to get the market's tendency on our side. We don't know absolutely what's going to happen. But he writes, if you invest when the market's tendency is biased toward favorable, you'll have the wind at your back. And an example he gives is during the financial crisis, 2008, they were buying... After October 2008, when Lehman went bankrupt, they invest in distressed debt, which in some ways is easier than stocks. Because with distressed debt, you're buying bonds that have defaulted. They're selling for 25, 30 cents on the dollar, maybe 40 cents. And it's a negotiation process to get together with a credit community, a credit committee, and they negotiate terms usually perhaps a bankruptcy judge in place. And the idea is that you'll get, you buy it 25 cents on the dollar and you get 50 cents on the dollar. It's, a, it's just, a, it takes patience, it takes time. They were investing systematically. I think they said a half, $500 million a week. He says you can't catch a falling knife because you never know where the bottom is. And investors that say you can't catch a falling knife and are trying to wait for the bottom he says, often by the time the bottom is there and things look clear, you don't find the bargains anymore. Now, as an individual investor, you have the advantage because you're not trying to put to get put $500 million to work. You can be patient. But when I, I invested with Oak Tree Capital in December 2008, they run the Vanguard Convertible Bond Fund. And I was actually, I pulled up the trade to see, I, I, let me find that. I bought that fund December 11th, 2008. I put $40,000 to work. It's the Vanguard Convertible Securities Fund, VCVSX. I didn't know whether the bottom was there or not. Turned out the bottom was on November 21st, 2008. The fund was selling. So it had fallen 29% or 35% from August 29, 2008. 
So it had fallen 35%. Its low was on November 21st, 2008, $8.35. Looks like I bought at about $8.98. But I didn't know. You just don't know. I was incrementally putting money to work in my personal portfolio as things were falling apart. Now, I waited to, 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 to really till March till you started to see evidence within PMI, these business surveys done around the world, to see that things were starting to change a little bit, but you can't move completely out all at once and you can't move completely in all at once. You have to be an incrementalist. You're trying to have the market tendency on your side, but that's what positioning for market cycles is. It's easier to do during these extreme events like we saw in 2008, but that those, it's also the hardest to do because that's where it takes the most fortitude. And that's why you kind of have to be gradual in your approach. So I, I bought this convertible bond fund I sold half in March 2010, or sorry, May 2010, and the other half, August 4th, 2011. So I made $23,000 or 58%. But that was just one investment. And I didn't know. You, you can't know. He says, when a market is cascading downward, investors can often be heard to say, we're not going to catch a falling knife. In other words, the trend is downward and there's no way to know when it'll stop. So why should we buy before we're sure the bottom has been reached? What I think they're really saying is we're scared, in particular, of buying before the decline has stopped and thus of looking bad. So we're going to wait until the bottom has been reached. The dust has settled and the uncertainty has been resolved. You can't. And it's embarrassing to buy early. I, we bought emerging markets three weeks early in 2008. We bought some U.S. stocks early in 2008 in our institutional portfolios. And it was embarrassing. But that's part of investing because we can't. We make inferences about what's happening. We try to get in line with the market tendencies. We try to have reasonable assumptions. And then we invest. And so in answering Matthew's question regarding the U.S., the U.S. economy is doing very well. Corporate profits are doing well. They've been, they have the wind to their back because of the tax cut. But the valuations are very, very high. That article by Jason Zweig made mention that U.S. stock market valuations are as high as they've been, have been relative to other asset classes other stock markets. Here, here's the quote. Compared with the rest of the world, U.S. stocks are at their highest valuations on record, according to Bank of America Merrill Lynch, trading for twice as much as measured by price to net worth as institutional or as international shares. Now, Zweig points out the rest of the world's markets are less dominated on average by technology stocks than the U.S. and more focused on cheaper industrial, and financial stocks. Zeig was quoting Toby Thompson. He's a multi-asset portfolio manager at T. Rowe Price. 
Toby says the price of such stocks outside the U.S. are a lot more compelling. Now, recognize technology stocks have faster earnings, so they're always going to be more highly valued than financial stocks. But the U.S. stock market is more expensive than non-U.S. And we have to, and we talked about this a few episodes ago, if we look out 10 years, and that's one of the things that he, he talks about, Marx talks about in his book. And so how do we decide this positioning? Decide how aggressive or defensive to be. Because we have this risk of losing money, but we also have the risk of missing out. We have to balance these two risks. And so he says, try to travel into the future and look back. In 2023, do you think you're more likely likely to say, back in 2018, I wish I'd been more aggressive? Or back in 2018, I wish I had been more defensive? In 2018, I missed the chance of a lifetime to buy XYZ. I don't know of many chances in lifetimes right now. We are not at an extreme in terms of opportunity. We're not necessarily at extreme in terms of risk either. You have to kind of play the probabilities. There's only one outcome. Only one thing's going to happen. But there's a range of potential things that could happen. And right now, I think the market's tendency is because valuations for U.S. stocks are very high, I'm willing to invest outside the U.S. It's been a painful trade this year because of the way emerging markets have done. But emerging market economies, even though they're slowing, continue to grow faster than the U.S. stock market. And so that's how that's how I'm positioned. But I, we don't know. I think from the credit cycle standpoint, we're getting toward the end of the credit cycle. When will a recession hit? I don't know. That's why we monitor PMI data. But you're not getting compensated in terms of additional yield for non-investment grade bonds like you were in even in 2016. Much higher compensation. Now it's much less. So that's episode 224. It's a great book by Howard Marks. I encourage you to go out and buy it, learn from it, learn about market cycles, and become a better investor by doing so. Show notes are moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free insider's guide, and I'll email those links to you each week along with other valuable content. That's a moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, check out Money for the Rest of Us Plus. Learn about our community where we spend our time evaluating where we are in the market cycle and how we position, which asset classes. That's a moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I have not provided investment advice. Simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.